happens to coincide. We planned this out, I guess, a little about, about a year-ish, year and a half ago. We planned out to begin Luke uh, the two weeks before Christmas, and we're going to be going through the book of Luke, Luke's letter to Theophilus. He's explaining what the gospel is. He's giving certainty to Theophilus. And so we'll be going through this letter over the course of the next year, going through this letter. And so what a perfect time to begin focusing on this good news that Luke gives to us. So we'll be reading in Luke 1, verses 1 to 25. Let's read God's holy inspired word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here he gives us a purpose. Look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled with him. He saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife's advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that is meant to give us hope in you. God, I pray that for all of us here who are uncertain, who are lacking in hope, Lord, I pray that you would give us your certainty, your hope that comes from your word. 
God, enable us to respond to you in rejoicing. Enable us to respond to you in praise. Enable us to respond to you in faith. God, we pray that you would make our hope in you secure today. That you would do this by your Holy Spirit. That you would enable me to preach, enable us to hear, Lord, by your work of grace. It's only by your Spirit. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come right now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up in, in my childhood, not everything was certain. It wasn't certain that we would have gas in the car. We often would run out of gas. We didn't have very much money. We'd run out of gas on the way there. What was certain was the important thing is that I wouldn't be stranded on the side of the road. My parents would either stay with me or they'd come to get me. Some things in my childhood were not certain, but the most important things, the things that really mattered, were certain. It wasn't certain that I get to go to my favorite pizza place, Anthony's Pizza, and have the best hand-tossed New York-style pizza that you'll encounter, at least from my childhood. I remember it that way. That wasn't certain, but what is certain is that I would always be fed something, that we would not go hungry. It, it wasn't certain that when I got up in the morning in the wintertime, my bedroom would be warm. It was often really cold because we had the heat turned off because we couldn't afford it. So we had a wood stove in the living room and we heated there. So what was certain though is if I went to the wood stove, I could get dressed there and stay warm. Some things were not certain, but the things that were important were certain. A lot of the little conveniences, a lot of little niceties, things that we wanted, those things were not certain. But what was certain was my parents' affection for me. I was certain of their love for me, that they cared about me, that they would always be there for me. Not everybody has that kind of certainty. If you have things that are uncertain in your life, they affect how you live your life. You know, I, 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 because of some of the oddities in my relationship with my dad, I wasn't always certain that I was living up to his expectations. And so there were many ways I wasn't certain that I was good enough. And, and that affected me long for many years and still is tempted to affect me. In many ways, looking for certainty, looking for acceptance from other people, looking to be good enough. Other areas, certainty has been extremely helpful. Knowing that no matter what, I can call my dad up. I, can, I, I know that he's going to take a call for me, that he's going to be there for me however he can. And that affects your approach on life if you grew up in a certain home. If you grew up in an uncertain home, that affects your life as well. We're not sure of Theophilus' background, but what we, sure, we are sure of is that Luke, he's writing for a, a, a purpose. This entire gospel, it's written for a purpose. And he, and he writes to Theophilus, probably his benefactor, Luke here, he's a physician, and he's writing to him. He says, Theophilus, I want you to be certain. I want you to be certain about the things you've been taught, because if you have certainty about the things you've been taught, that will have an effect on how you live and respond to what you've been taught. And that's true for each and every one of us. We need certainty about what is most important. We need certainty. And some of you may not be coming here today. You might be a little uncertain. And, and for those of you who are uncertain, hear these words to you as God's desire for you to find certainty in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate this whole Christmas season. And we can have certainty that, that Jesus came to bring salvation. That's what the whole book of Luke is all about, that it, finding certainty in the fact that Jesus came bringing salvation and that that salvation has an effect on us and that salvation is meant for us to then take that to other people. It's the kind of the, 
the overarching message of Luke in a nutshell. And, and everything Luke does is to give us certainty in the salvation that Jesus brings and certainty in our ability to then share that and the transforming ability of the gospel. It's meant to give us certainty. Certainty brings our belief to life. Certainty gives, has consequences in how we live, or the lack of certainty has consequences in how we live, doesn't it? If you're uncertain of affection, you'll be seeking affection. If you're uncertain of being secure, you'll seek security. If you're uncertain of relationships, you'll seek stability in relationships. Luke writes this gospel to give us certainty about what matters most. And he's given us reason for certainty. That's the very first thing we see. And really, chapters 1 and 2, Luke gives us his resume of Jesus. But before he gives us talks about Jesus, he does something surprising. He talks about somebody else. He talks about John. And he gives us reason for certainty right away. And the credentials of the one who is to come by giving us certainty in the fact that God's purposes, his promises are fulfilled in this baby that he's announcing named John. And so he's writing to give certainty about the things that have been taught. And he gives us very specific reasons for certainty. And the second thing we'll see is that, that we've been given certainty in historical facts. Christianity is not based on myth. It's not based on, hey, I heard from a guy a long time ago about another guy in another place. And it's not generic. It's not vague. We have certainty in historical facts. As you notice in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. He is giving Theophilus certainty, saying, This just didn't happen. Um, hey, a long time ago, this happened. I'm not exactly sure when. I'm not exactly sure who. No, he grounds this in reliable facts. And this happened in a very specific time, in a very specific place. And historians outside of Christianity can prove Herod, king of Judea, existed. He was appointed king by the Roman emperor, and he was allowed to be a vassal king of sorts over that area of Judea. And, and Herod was a very real person with very real documented actions. Why does Luke do that? Because he wants to ground Theophilus' hope and our hope in, in the fact that we can rely on this good news, what we've been taught, because it's historical. It's true. It's based in true facts. It's not speculation. This is real, and we're meant to really believe it. Not only is it set in a historical time period, did you notice he, he gives very specific real people who's have real names from real tribes. He says, Zechariah, who was a priest, and he was from this division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. See, they're both actually double blessing from the, the two sides of the priesthood of Aaron. He says, here's this man named Zechariah. He was from this clan. You can document it. You can go back to it. Um, and I don't know if he was still alive at the time, but, but you can talk to Elizabeth, and she, has, she was a wife from the daughters of Aaron. This wasn't generic was a particular man from a particular place and division, a particular woman. And he's saying, Theophilus, you can look this up. This is historical, verifiable facts. The, the, the facts of Christianity are historical and accurate. You don't place your faith in something that is a myth at some point in time with some generic people. I heard a rumor from a guy who heard a rumor from a guy. No, you have historically verifiable facts. 
And, and he doesn't begin the story of the salvation that Theophilus heard about. He doesn't begin this account talking about Jesus, which is a little bit surprising. It's a little bit surprising. If, if Jesus is the main character, which he is, in the narrative of salvation, he doesn't begin there, and he does that for a reason. Luke says, I want you to see that this character, John, is extremely important, and he's tied to history as well. He's, he, we're going to see that in just a few minutes. He's, he's tied to the history of Israel in very specific ways. But we can also have certainty over the patterns, the ways that God works. We can look and see the different ways and patterns of God's working. And we can, we can have certainty through patterns of how God works. Just like in, in the morning, I am certain the sun is going to rise. Whether or not I want it to rise, the sun will rise. If I stayed up too late, the sun will still rise. If I get up early, the sun is still going to rise. I don't control the sun's rising and setting. But I am certain that day by day, while this world exists, the sun will rise and the sun will set. And I've observed that every day of my life that I've been able to observe it. I've observed those patterns of God's working and seen and it's given me certainty that it's going to happen. And I, and I plan my whole life around it. And most people do plan their lives around when the sun rises and when the sun sets because we have certainty over something. And God wants us to have that same kind of certainty. And he wants us to see that through the patterns of how he works, not just in the physical realm, but how has he worked in redemptive history. And get this. He uses a old, and I don't mean that badly, it's just true, she's an old woman, he uses an old, barren woman. And that's actually a pattern for God. We're meant to recognize that. We're meant to recognize, Theophilus is meant to recognize this. This is a pattern of how God works. When God's about to bring about salvation, he has commonly done that in the past through using barren women. Isn't that like God? God delights to make the barren alive. He delights to give life to those who are barren. He delights to, to change the fortunes of those who are long past what's credible and to make alive. And he did that at the very beginning when, when he was at the beginning of the faith. He called Abram and he gave him a promise, but he waits until they're way past the age of conception until Elizabeth's womb is, is barren and, and dried up, is kind of the literal language that it uses. And it's, I think God does that because he's intentionally showing that he's the God who reverses the consequences of the fall. That's what God does. You see, in the fall, a, a woman went astray. Now, it was man's responsibility, but she went astray and, and she had pain in childbirth. Now God says, I'm going I'm I'm to show how I am the God who reverses those things. I'm the God who brings new life, that the story didn't end there. I'm going to bring new life through barren women. Abram and Sarah, she was, she was barren beyond the years of conception. It wasn't possible to conceive, and yet God brought the child of the promise through this barren woman. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she was barren and God answered Isaac's prayers and Rebecca conceived and gave birth to Jacob who became the father of the nation or the tribes of Israel whose name was changed to Israel through a barren woman. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren too and God enabled her to conceive when she cried out in desperation and, and God brought about Joseph who would rescue or save the people from starvation. 
Think about in Judges, we went through just last year, the story of Manoah and his barren wife and how the angel of the Lord, a very similar, strikingly similar account of how the angel of the Lord, he appears to her and he prophesies about how she would conceive and bear a son who must abstain from strong drink, by the way. And, and this son would, would begin to bring about the salvation of Israel. It tells us in Judges 13.5. He would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God's patterns in history are, are, are shown through how he works through barren women to bring about salvation. And that's what God does. And so you can see, he's trying to give Theophilus, this is the pattern of how God works. And so you can see, this is, this is not an anomaly. This isn't something unusual. This is how God continues to work. He turns women who are barren into fruitful women. And through Manoah, God would begin to save Israel through Samson. He'd be God's mighty man of deliverance. Later on, if you think about it, God heard the prayers of barren Hannah as she is in the temple similar setting she's in the temple going before the presence of God and she's in the courtyard she's praying and and God answers her prayers and we have the prophet Samuel who was significant in bringing about King David who was a forerunner for the salvation of God's people and now God answers the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth, to bring about John, the one who will prepare the way for, for God's ultimate, his final salvation. These are the same patterns, and so we can actually have certainty. This is the patterns of how God works. It's, it's just like God. That's what God does. And he also meets his people in the temple. He promised to make his presence known, to meet his people, to bring salvation through the temple. And that's, that's meant to give Theophilus certainty. This isn't some obscure place and some obscure way God came to the first place you would expect him God came to the temple he gave his word through the temple he gave his word to the priest to the person who's the mediator of the covenant to God's people God brought this announcement of what was to come it says he was serving as priest before God it was a very specific time Zechariah. In that day, there was several thousand priests in Israel and there was probably about 300 and so priests in his division and so it wasn't possible for priests to serve in every role in the temple. There were so many different roles in the temple that people served in. That's just a guitar falling. It's okay. There were so many different roles for people to serve in in the temple. And yet uh, th there were too many priests. And so what they would do is they would draw lots to see who could get this, these, these coveted ways to serve this, these honored ways to serve and so it would have been the greatest privilege of a lifetime to be able to go into the holy place behind the curtain right up against the presence of the holy of holies to offer the prayers of the people incense burn incense on this little incense table it would have been a huge privilege and they would have drawn a lottery for it it tells us because it was a it was a very unique privilege and not everybody got to serve that way and in fact if they did they were only allowed to serve one time in their entire lifetime so this was it. This was a huge honor. Zechariah, he, he's going in. I, if you can picture this, he, he goes into the temple and he's, he's excited. He's an old man, but he's been waiting all of his life to offer incense, to go into the holy place that he might encounter God. He's, he's waiting his whole life for, for him to offer the prayers of God's people to God. And, and he's waiting for this opportunity. And he's, he's, 
He's done his preparation to make himself pure. He's putting on these priestly robes. He goes, he's probably invited all of his friends and family, everybody knows in this tribe, and they're all outside in the, in the temple courtyard there awaiting this time, this huge privilege. And so he goes past them all. He goes through this curtain. He goes into the holy place. And there is this lampstand of life that's flickering in the dark, and there's a table with bread the presence of God, and they're right up against the Holy of Holies, this, this curtain that separates him from the very holy presence of God in the ark is this little table, only about that big. And it's where they would burn incenses so that the people would know when they're offering incense, they're offering the prayers of the people to God. And so the people would be able to smell that, knowing that prayers are always going up before God and God hears their prayers. And so he's, this most important time in his life, he, he goes into the presence, and he, he should be expecting, he, he obviously is expecting that God will hear his prayers, to hear the prayers of the people. And it was customary what the prayers of the people would be. What the priest would offer is he would ask for the salvation of the people because the people were still under Rome's boot. They were being oppressed by Rome, and they were praying, hoping for salvation. They were desperate after all, it had been 400 years since anyone in Israel had heard God speak. 400 years since the prophet Malachi wrote. And so he goes in there and he's, he goes and stands before the presence of God with just this curtain separating him. He must have been trembling. His heart must have been pounding. He was probably a little nervous. But then he was given the certainty of God's presence. We've been given certainty. In, in Zechariah's angelic visitation, we've been given certainty through his angel's announcement. We've been given certainty through his angel's announcement. You know, when uh, a new law is announced, it may or may not be carried out. Supreme Court may or may not have something to do with that. It might be overturned. You never know. But when, typically, when the IRS says there's a new tax, it is rarely ever rescinded. It's pretty certain. You know, the only thing that's certain is death and taxes. I think that's pretty true, right? When God gives his word through angelic announcements in the Old Testament, it, is, it always comes to pass. It is always certain. And we have been given that kind, same kind of certainty. That's the certainty that Zechariah was given. And it was through an angel, Gabriel. And, and Gabriel is important. And the reason why Gabriel's important is going to come out in just a minute, but, but we have certainty through this angelic announcement, and he's announcing God's promise. He's announcing the fulfillment of God's promise. He's announcing one that will come in the, in the spirit of Elijah to be a forerunner to bring God's salvation. So he says, all of a sudden there's appeared to him right beside this little table, probably about 18 inches square, and right beside him, so he's burning, and then, boom, an angel's there. And it says it scares the pants off him. No, it doesn't say that, but it, it, it scared him half to death. You know, it, He's terrified. And he's afraid because that's how people always responded to angels in the Old Testament. No one sees an angel, they're like, hey, high five. Not going to happen. Everyone sees an angel in the Old Testament and responds in, in terror, in fear. These aren't cutesy, friendly, soft, fuzzy-looking things. These are, these are fierce, huge warriors who are supernatural beings. They stand in the presence of God. They reflect his holiness, and, and it's, it is too much to bear. Half the time, people can't even look at angels. They're just too bright. They're just reflecting God's glory. 
And so he's afraid, he's terrified. And the angel says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he tells him something astounding. He says, your prayer has been heard. Not just the prayer that the priest would offer on behalf of the people. That is amazing enough that God would hear the people's prayers. He says, your prayer, your specific prayer, the prayer that you pray for you. It's been heard. And your wife's going to bear a son, and you'll call his name John. We have certainty that God, God answers prayers. He hears prayers, and he answers prayers. And he heard Zachariah's prayer for a child after so many years and they're barren and after so many years of reproach and mocking and embarrassment and shame because in that culture, if you were barren, it was assumed that something was wrong with you, you disobeyed God, that, that you must not be blessed by God. And so God says, I'm answering your prayer. I'm giving you a child. And maybe it was this once-in-a-lifetime shot. Zachariah's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and ask before God's presence. This is the only time I have. I, I, I'm guaranteed right here. And he gets this astounding news. They're going to have a son named John whose name means the Lord is gracious. He says, you'll have joy and gladness. Many rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or not drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He would have been offering prayers for the salvation of Israel. And, and as he went, his prayers and the prayers of the people were answered by God. They weren't just going to have a son. He was going to be great. And, and he was going to be great because he was going to be set apart for service to the Lord. And, and they said, instead of, instead of drinking strong wine and, and, and strong drink, he, he's, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit was something that only a few in the history of Israel would have experienced. And whenever anyone experienced being filled with the Spirit, it was always to carry out God's purposes, empowered for his ministry. And he says something spectacular that no one else up until now, has ever experienced in the old, entire Old Testament. He says he's going to be filled from his mother's womb. This is an astounding announcement that he's receiving. And then here's the promise, here's the certainty of that angelic announcement that, that we were given, that, that he was given. He says he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Those who are in name following after God, he's going to turn them so that they are actually following God. So they are actually turning their hearts to the Lord. And then he says something else. The angel here, he quotes something. It's very interesting what he quotes because this is the first announcement we see in the New Testament. And he's quoting something. He's quoting the last thing we hear in the Old Testament. He says he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see in Malachi 3.1, he, he told of a day when God would send the ultimate prophet, when God would send the ultimate prophet who would be the messenger of the covenant. That's what Isaiah 3.1 says. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Oh, that's exactly what Zechariah is experiencing. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, oh, here's the good news. Behold, he is coming. This, this covenant bringer. He's coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then as a guarantee of that, he says, I'm gonna prepare a way for his coming, for this coming of this covenant keeper, this one who brings the covenant, this, this messenger of God, who's, I'm gonna send you another messenger who's gonna prepare a way. And he's talking now about John. And then he says in Malachi 4, 6, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And now here, 
the angel is quoting the very last words in the Old Testament, picking up the conversation, if you will. God's last words become his first words again. There's hope. There's certain hope in salvation, certain hope in the, in the, in the new covenant coming. And the first way he's going to get people ready is by turning the hearts of the people back to the Lord their God. And that's the first thing that, that we need to do is, is turn to God, turn our hearts back to him to repent and turn to God. And maybe you're here today and your heart is far from God. He wants you to return to him so you can receive the salvation that he brings. And then he says something different. He says, to return the hearts of the children, the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That's an interesting phrase. Whenever that phrase occurs, it it's, has to do with being disobedient to the wisdom that God brings. He says, I'm gonna turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Who are the just? And in in Luke's book, there are, there are two different kinds of people that, that John encounters, that Jesus encounters. Two different kinds of people. There's the kind of person who justifies themselves, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the people who think that they are just on their own righteousness, that they are acceptable before God based on the performance of their religious duties, that they believe that they're just before God because of that. And then there's a second group that says, no, we know that we're not just before God based on our own merit, and they look to Jesus, to God, to justify them. It's the difference between the man who's, who beats his breast and says, woe is me, and the Pharisee who says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And so, John came to turn the disobedient, those who disobey God by putting their trust, their hope in themselves, to the wisdom of the just, to those who've been justified. What's the wisdom of the justified? To turn our hearts to see that, that we're justified by faith in Christ alone. John's mission was to turn the hearts of the people away from trusting themselves, to away from disobedience, to, to make people ready for the Lord. And that's how we become ready too. We turn away from trusting ourselves. We turn away from self-justification to the wisdom of the truly just. As so we went and read this account, we're meant to ask ourselves, have I, have I turned my heart to him? Have I prepared my heart to receive Jesus? Am I prepared to receive him again? How am I gonna respond to God? Is, does my heart turn towards God? Am I, am I turning to the wisdom of the just? Have I turned from my disobedience? And then we see in this passage as well that there are three potential ways to respond. There's three potential ways to respond. There's, there's an uncertain response, or actually a response that's certainly not believing in Zechariah. There's a response that's not sure, that's not certain. And then there's a response that's based in certainty. And, and Luke wants us to see, and he wants the office to see, we're meant to respond in certainty. We're meant to respond in certainty. Zechariah says to the angel, how do I know this? Now, that is shocking. Remember I said it's important that this is, this is Gabriel? This is an angel in God's very own presence. This is an angel who appears in the holy place right beside where the prayers of the people are offered, right outside of the holy of holies. This, this could be nothing other than a messenger from God because nothing else can stand before his presence. So Zechariah should have expected some encounter with God, even if it wasn't physical, if he didn't see something, he should have expected to experience God when he goes into God's holy place. And so when Zechariah goes there, he's a priest, he's hopefully expecting, he's hopefully looking for God to answer prayers, but he wasn't. He didn't expect for God to show up when he prayed. 
He didn't expect for his prayers to be answered. And so he sees this terrifying angel that he knows is an angel. He's troubled and he's scared. And yet, and he's in God's presence, and he doesn't believe God's messenger in God's place. The very one who should have believed God, the priest who's offering the prayers the people who are supposed to believe that God answers prayers, does not believe. And he didn't believe Gabriel. This is the same Gabriel, by the way. We're not going to get to read the whole passage, but the same Gabriel who appeared in Daniel 9, and he, Zechariah would have read and learned about. This is the same Gabriel that appeared to Daniel. You can put it up on the overheads on uh, Daniel 9, 20. He, he appeared to Daniel. And Gabriel came to give him insight and understanding. He came to announce everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet to know in the most holy place. The angel came to announce God's righteousness. And then he tells Daniel to shut those words up. In Daniel 12, 4, he says, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. That time of the end is what we see in our passage. And Gabriel's coming again. He says, now let's, let's open it up and I'm gonna, I want you to hear God's word again. He announces the beginning of God speaking again. But Zachariah didn't speak because he was struck mute. And I love what David Gooding says. He says, but a priest who can't believe the authoritative word of an angel of God because he can't accept the possibility of divine intervention to reverse the decay of nature has lost faith in the basic principle of redemption. Have, have you lost faith in the basic principle of God's redemption? He says, without redemption, he has no gospel. Without a gospel, any blessings he pronounced upon the people will be the emptiest of professional formalities. If Zechariah could not believe the angel's gospel, it were better that he didn't pretend to bless the people. Fittingly, the angel struck him dumb. How will you respond to God's announcement? Like Zechariah, we're meant to see that as a cautionary tale. That, that, that's not the kind of response that we're to have. That receives consequences. Unfortunately, he was just left mute but he was left mute and we'll see this in the following weeks he was left mute until he turned and responded to God in faith and put his faith in action by saying this is this is his name's John I'm obeying him now I'm responding in faith now we don't want to be found as those who don't believe and receive consequences David Garland I'm going to share a long quote for you but it's 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 extremely helpful it says it's possible that in praying Christians I'm praying, Christians only go through the motions without faith that God will answer. Is that you? He says, there may be little interest in seeing how God might answer prayer. A lack of anticipation that anything will ever change can lead to spiritual languor, which in turn leads to a voice that is mute about the hope that God's promise is awakened. How can Christians always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that you have if they have no hope in them? Do you have hope? There's another danger that our hopes can become domesticated and self-centered. We as Christians become so wrapped up in our own little world, we fail to lift up our eyes to see the unimaginable things God has planned and promised. Most readers of this book live in a society where fear of death and loss holds the majority subconsciously in its grip. Where ideologies of self-advancement, the artificially stimulated appetite for more of everything good now dominates our worldview, our practical priorities, our understanding of life's ultimate meaning and goal. We as Christians should measure our hopes for today and tomorrow in a despairing world by the promises that God has unfolded in Scripture that extend far beyond the materiality of this orb. And that's what we've been given in this announcement. We've been given the fulfillment of Scripture. And we can have certainty 
God's a speaking God and he announces his salvation. He announces that he brings the covenant. He's announcing that he's making all things new. He is making the barren fruitful, bringing new life where no life existed. Then we see a second response. The people were waiting outside. They didn't know how to respond. They weren't exactly sure. They're like, what's going on? What's taking him so long? Why is he dawdling so much? Where could he be? Did he get killed? He's in God's presence. What happened to him? We're not sure. Because if you go in the wrong way, you, you could get killed like Nadab and Abihu who offered some strange incense before God and they were wiped out. So people are wondering, they're not sure. He comes out, he's unable to speak. He's unable to tell them the very good news he's been given. What a shame that is. But they think something has to have happened here. They were uncertain. They're undecided. And that's, that's so like so many of the people in the book. People who don't believe. People who are undecided. And then you see Elizabeth's response. I, I love, this is the beginning to God to reverse the fall. The woman who didn't put her faith and trust in God. and Eve, now you see Elizabeth putting her faith, her trust in God. After he's done serving, he goes back home. Sometime later, Elizabeth conceives. She, she conceives a response that is one of trust and gratitude. She made the connection between um, her conception and God's word. She believed that God had looked on her and took away her reproach. How about you? How will we respond to the good news of God's salvation that John was given to prepare the very way for? What we celebrate this season is that, that Jesus is that messenger who has come. Jesus is the ultimate one who's been given for salvation, the, the bringer of the new covenant. He is the one whom all our hope is in. He's historical. He's reliable. We can be certain about him. And all throughout Luke, we're going to have reasons for certainty all throughout the book. Everything from, from Jesus' resume about his coming of John and, and how John's fulfillment of Scripture and John's pointing, the one coming in Elijah, is pointing to the Messiah and how Jesus has come, born of a virgin, and how he's conceived by God and the Holy Spirit in Mary. And then we're going to see Jesus' life. He lived a perfect life. We can be certain we have hope. We can be certain we have hope because Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered every evil power. He conquers demonic forces, the decay of the human body. He brings the dead to life. And, and the whole book is meant to give us certainty in the salvation that Jesus brings. How will you respond? Jesus came. We celebrate that he came as a baby to live the life that we were meant to live. And he came to do that perfectly. In every way, he resisted sin said no to temptation. He willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. He's been raised to new life so that all who have life in him by faith can share in his eternal life and, and he reigns over all things now in heaven. And one day he's gonna return to judge those who are disobedient. Right now we're meant to turn from disobedience. And he's gonna reward those who are justified in him who turn to the wisdom of the just. The question is, will we be ready Will our hearts be turned to him? Will the way be prepared for him to receive him? This passage is, is meant to give us certainty in God's salvation and to respond to God's salvation with certain faith. And I love Elizabeth's response. It's what God desires from us. Faith in his salvation. Faith that trusts in his word. Faith that says, he has taken away my reproach. After all, that's the good news of the gospel. He takes away our reproach. We have reason for reproach. She did not in the sense that she shouldn't have been reproached because of her barrenness. We deserve reproach 
for our sins. And yet because of Jesus coming to make the new covenant with us, he's, he's taken away our reproach. We can have certainty in God's word and his good news with the same kind of trust that we have in, in the fact that the sun is gonna rise tomorrow, it's gonna set tonight, it's gonna rise tomorrow, and we plan our lives around that. We're meant to plan our whole life around this certain hope and the fact that the Son of God has risen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us certainty. Father, for all those who have uncertainty in their past, uncertain childhoods, uncertain parentage, uncertain relationships, uncertain finances, uncertainty in so many areas of life. Lord, I pray that you would turn us from trusting in in uncertain things to turn us to trust in Jesus. You are certain hope. We don't know how things are gonna work out. We don't know how things are gonna pan out for us in every way, but Lord, we do know that, that you are certain and that you certainly give all who hope in you new life. And so God, I pray that you would redeem the uncertainty we've had in our lives, and you would give us certain hope in you. God, that you would take away the reproach of each and every person here as we turn our hearts towards you. And I pray that we would respond with rejoicing and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.